0: Kia ora again. Isn't God good? Yes. Just collecting my thoughts. Uh, I'm not sure they're collectible. Uh, um, we'll see how we go. Special edition, they're really rare. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know the old saying, I'm lost in thought. It was unfamiliar territory. Uh, whew. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, I'm Matt Mansell, uh, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I uh, during, during the week, I work in a government department in IT, uh, and for the last little while on Sunday nights, with Natalia and Zoe and Matt and, and others, we've been leading a night service. Uh, and in that night service, we've been looking through the Book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> and as a part of that, along with some other reading I've been doing, I've been exploring this idea of the third way. And James, uh, when he said he was going to be away today, asked if I could speak and he said maybe you could share some of your thoughts on that. So I think that's what's going to happen this morning. We'll see how we go. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a, in a, in, as an exile in the world because that's what we're called to. So that's what uh, today is all about. Now, in that way that these things happen, I was, I've was i been thinking and praying about this and stewing on it for a while, and then Natalia sent me a video that was basically my whole message. So uh, technology working for us. Um, we will watch that. Is it turned on? It is turned on. Yeah, it did buzz. Whoops. Can you change the slide for me, please, Sam? And press go on the video. I used to work as a software tester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, the entire job was to break software. and And I used to think it was because I was trained to, but actually it was just an inherent quality of mine. So if I...
1: In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned.
2: Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became
1: exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods,
2: Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods
1: as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf.
2: So this is like a third way.
1: Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites
2: taken into the Babylonian exile.
1: And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise.
2: Or they could gain the king's trust
1: and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect, but instead they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style.
2: So they seek Babylon's well-being.
1: But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their god and resist the influence of Babylon.
2: So, for example?
1: Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's
2: a god. Ah, they won't go that far.
1: Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness.
2: So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God.
1: Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles. But don't Daniel and his friends
2: long to go home?
1: Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he
2: think this ruler would come?
1: Well, at first he thought within his lifetime. But then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another.
2: And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home But now they're ruled by Babylon's successors.
1: And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus.
2: The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods.
1: But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way
2: of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion.
1: Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations.
2: The king that Daniel had hoped for.
1: Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail.
2: And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile.
1: Yeah, this is why the apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil.
2: Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater?
1: Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension. Between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile.
0: It's quite a challenging video in some ways, isn't it? Uh, and, and really, uh, it's left me thinking an awful lot. So, what... we're going to be doing, what I'm going to be doing today is reflecting. (laughs) It's definitely on. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the way that leads to life? And there are few that find it. He is... You know, in, in this, he's presenting this way of walking, this other way of, of walking in the world that is both of the world, sorry, in the world, but not of the world. We love dichotomies. As, as people, we love to make things either or. We love, that's the one, yep. We love this idea that it's, it's easy to categorize things, right? So a, a dichotomy is a, you know, this or that. And it, actually they have some value, they're, they're kind of like a mental tool that we use, a rule of thumb that helps us categorise things, people and ideas. It's kind of like a helping heuristic, and I think it's common to people. Uh, and, and there's a particular element of it in our culture today that actually stems all the way back to people like Plato, uh, we have this idea that there's this either-or thinking, but that was not the mindset of Jesus. And unfortunately, for humanity and for the church uh, in the West, in particular, but maybe elsewhere as well, this dichotomous thinking has plagued it ever since Jesus first came and fought against it. And in fact, uh, all you know, Daniel and so so on. So I've been reading a really interesting book called Spiritual and Religious by Tom Wright. So You might also know some of his works. as N- He's also writes as N.T. Wright. He's a really good English theologian and I would encourage, um, you, you know, his work is really good as well worth reading. And he calls anything that is not, not adherence to Jesus paganism. And he actually talks about how we are, we are living in an age of paganism and that that is a real problem for the church because we import that into the church. What Jesus calls us to do is a radical following of him and putting to death the sacred cows, the idols that we may have created, so that we might follow him. I've been quite challenged in the prayer and research and teaching we've been doing and exploring this you know and this is the whole thing um I almost feel like every time I get up to preach the first person I'm talking to is myself um and the first person who needs to hear what I've got to say is me <laughs> so I just want to take you through the can you give do the next slide please So I want to examine this idea of the third way and walking this path of exile in three different areas, although I've changed the last one. So the first is, I'm going to get a little bit theological and philosophical on you for a second, uh, looking at monism versus dualism, and then the way of Jesus. And then I want to look at politics, another great topic to talk about in church, (laughs) uh, left versus right, and the way of Jesus. And the last one I've changed and I want to look at submission, uh, or uh, relevance, and resistance—all the way of Jesus. So, so if you can have, if we can have the next one. So I'm, I'm, these quotes up here. There's quite a lot to read. These are from Tom Wright's book, Spiritual and Religious. The the one on the left hand side is cutting the world in half. That is dualism, and this he sees. He says, we, we are seeing the world split in two, with, just, with one part labelled good and the other bad. A shorthand for this is dualism, a system that divides reality into the world of physical phenomena and the world of timeless truths, the truths of reason. And you can't jump between them. Humans, are, and, and I think this is something we're all aware of, there's this contrast between uh, good and evil and also between the physical world and the non-physical world. And so we often make, a, uh, make the world into two, hence dualism, two things. And, and unless you think this is uh, empty philosophy and I'm just waffling on about stuff, Christi- in, well, about nothing to do with Christianity, theologians view the false teachers and deceivers, deceivers referred to in 1 John and 2 John as dualists, and in fact early Gnostics. Gnosticism was this, this heresy, this thing that came up, and it came out of uh, Christianity where, and there were various flavours of it, where basically people went, ma- flesh and the material world is evil and spirit is good. And then they created all sorts of rules and secret knowledge that would enable you to transcend your flesh and uh, become more spiritual. And the, the early. Gnostics that were criticised, that John criticised, believed that Jesus was actually the spirit of Jesus inhabited or possessed a guy, and uh, the spirit of Jesus was always pure, and then there's this kind of fleshly evil man that he that he possessed, and then uh, went on. So there's this, this thing about this kind of spiritual life. So their thinking, you can see that in a lot of new age worldviews. So. My my own journey, spiritual journey as a teenager and an early in my early twenties, I was very much a new age kind of person. Then I became an atheist and then God showed up. Uh, and so I basically went from being a dualist to an atheist, which is a kind of monism, and then to a theist. So but we do see this Kind of dualism expressed in the church sometimes, and it's a really dangerous uh, place to get into. We see—I have seen teaching not here, um, but you know—you see people talking online, and you see stuff happening, and and you get this this idea that people go, um, for example, that. Uh, Our resurrected bodies are entirely spiritual things that happen in some other place rather than the renewal of the earth that God called good and the renewal of the bodies that God called good. And you get people preaching, that, in, in essence, that the world and flesh is evil and that we should be seeking to escape into some spiritual realm. And so we're denying the goodness of God's creation in that. As for monism, it's less directly addressed in the Bible, and that's really the idea that everything is one and that everything is, you know, that that God is sort of present in everything. But you do see it in the thinking of the pagan religions that are around Jesus at the time. You know, belief in gods of the harvest, they essentially locate the divine in the world. The thing that you see today and it's most brutally expressed in some in, in I've seen people talk about this. They they say that humanity is a plague on the earth and that things like Covid are Gaia cleansing herself of the virus of humanity. So that is very much monist thinking. That the earth is somehow godly or divine and um, Distressingly, we also see that a little bit. Not that particular thing, but we see this monist idea in Christianity where we focus too much on one part of God. So, the one that, uh, you know, so one of the things I see is we focus on the, the imminence of God, his presence in the world and his nearness to us. And he is near, don't get me wrong. But he's also transcendent. And we focus on his closeness and his friendship but not his uh, vastness and transcendence and uh, cre- and lordship. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, so I'm going to out Zoe a little bit. She's been talking to me about this idea of um, about how God is not personal. Now, I don't want to steal her idea. I think maybe one day uh, she might share it. But this idea that we can fall into monism by characterising too much of one of the aspects of God, and then leave behind the rest of who he is. And so we end up worshipping an idol that we have made of God. It's our, our projection of what God is rather than how he presents himself. And so while this language of dualism and monism is kind of technical, there's a very real thing that it's very easy for people to fall into, to kind of fall one way or the other to try and explain the world that we live in. Can we have the next slide? (laughs) I don't want to talk too much about politics. uh, But the third way is asking us to walk in the way of Jesus. Uh, And and and, what, what is the way of Jesus? What did he do? He engaged the world in radical, sacrificial love. He... And he always and always seeking to honour God above all things. As it said in the video, he walked both the path of uh, he walked the third way, he, he honoured what he had to honour, but he always honoured God first. I've seen, you know, you see online, right, and I've I've had people say heard people say this if you vote for such and such, then you can't be a Christian. it's a really common thing, right? Or if you believe such and such political policy, you can't be a Christian. Uh, And it it happened during the election campaign. You see that kind of rhetoric online. Just, you know, literally just finished. And the the thing is, is, actually, if you really look at it, it can get quite confusing. Because there are people both on the left and on the right... Arguing, if you follow that thing that they believe over there, then you can't be a Christian. If you follow that thing over there, or if you believe that thing over there, then you can't be a Christian. The other thing, you remember at the end of the video when it talked about Babylon and how we have to find our way and it's sort of against the institutions that would demand our allegiance. Increasingly, the language of politics is the language of religion. And, we, and, and many political parties are expressly aiming... To cultivate the kind of religious fervor that you get from that for for someone that w- for someone who's a follower of, of a religion and an adherent to it, and they want that to supplant our allegiance to Jesus. It's most obviously exhibited in the extreme left and extreme white right in the United States at the moment. But and and I think. What we can see in a lot of cases there, as well as elsewhere, people have placed political allegiance over allegiance to God. And I can't and won't tell you how you should vote the next time it comes around. That's not my job. That's your job to to seek God for that. Or what political views you should hold. I'm not here to do that. What I would exhort and encourage you to do in the increasingly divided times that we live in and the increasingly challenging times to be a Christian, is I would exhort you to lay all of your political ideals at the foot of the cross and ask Jesus to sift them. If he tells you you've created political idols in your life and asks you to tear tear them down, then I encourage you to follow the the path of obedience. If you place a political idol, whether a politician, a party, or policy above Christ, then you're not worshipping Christ. That's true of any other kind of idol as well. Um, so the we have the next one. I changed this one. Brew? Oh, we can just, just well, there's one slide in particular I'd like to have later on, but the rest of them don't really matter. Um, I was originally going to talk about the spirit. Versus the law or mysticism versus legal. I think the batteries might be running flat. Hmm. No. No. It's all great. Okay, so, but the, and I've been thinking about this idea of submission versus resistance. And there's another way to put that there's this idea of relevance first resistance. So have you ever heard anyone say the church needs to be culturally relevant? It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? How do we be culturally relevant? Well, we've got to take these ideas that exist in our culture and we've got to sub, sub subvert and submit the church and Christ to the ideals. And that's a that's a funny thing to say, really, isn't it? When you when you think about it, we're going to put these things ahead of our God. And and at the most extreme, you kind of get the really very culturally relevant churches that, that are um, Christian in name only. There's a in you know there's this idea that you can kind of have it on the branding, but not have it in the soul. We sang today about making this place an altar. The, I, was, I was reflecting on that. And you know what the altar is used for, right? Sacrifice. And that might mean that rather than walking the path of relevance, we have to walk the path of sacrifice. We may have to walk the path calling us to that means it 's going to cost us we always have a backup uh, so there 's this this real this real challenge and this is where I think the rubber meets the road is that we are uh, in a culture that is increasingly demanding increasingly demanding of our allegiance and you see this i mean i've been following a whole bunch of stuff you know I, i look at the 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 dumpster fire that is twitter and and look at the things that people talk about and this this and the the reality is though is that those tools have real power in our world and they have democratized mob rule right it's it's actually there and amplified it there are people losing their careers over saying things you know that actually people are created male and female, and people academics they 're not necessarily Christian people, although some are, but there are plenty of people who are losing careers over making statements like that and it 's not because there's a good argument it 's not like we're putting out ideas into a marketplace of ideas and debating these ideas. People explicitly are attacking the reputation and character of people to take them down. Jermaine Greer is a atheist, feminist, philosopher who said a little while ago that you can't make a man a woman. You can unman a man, but you can't make a man a woman. And people there was a massive move to de platform her. Right? Whether you whether you agree with her or not there wasn't an argu- there wasn't a debate about whether or not those ideas were right or wrong the response was outrage we live in an outrage culture and and it's 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 an example of that kind of thing right where we are and you see it elsewhere as well where there are there's there's a, there's a growing sort of uh anti science kind of view of things so we we see this happening, and the, the the challenges is that actually, if we look at what Jesus says, the path we're called to walk is a countercultural path. Whatever it is that you you are particularly called to walk out in that path, because it, dif- it differs. This, well, part of the challenge of this is it's different for all of us. But we have this uh, countercultural thing. So the the path of cultural re- relevance effectively gives us the choice of t- giving up the gospel for whatever the popular ideas of the time are. By the same token, you can kind of go too far the other way and stand in sort of abject opposition and and, and in fact in some cases uh, violent opposition to the things that are going on in the world at the same time You're you're making something else your God, other than Jesus, because He's pretty clear about what resistance looks like. So we have this this challenge, this path to walk, and and I'm going to be honest. It seems to me that we're living in a culture that's going to become more, where this is going to become more and more pronounced. And so we really need to be clear in our own minds, in our own hearts what it means for us you know I I, the the verse up here right so this is uh, it was highlighted in the video as well so we have the uh, Herodians and the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus this is so in the gospel of Mark Jesus has this journey right he ministers in Galilee and he heals lots of people and he drives out demons and he does all this stuff when I read through the gospel of Mark he doesn't do any miracles except prophecy in the temple which I thought was really interesting They'll happen elsewhere where the people are. And um that's kind of an aside, but but he's there and he's 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 in, in Mark eleven he sets his face to Jerusalem and he's setting his face on the path of confrontation. Just prior to this he's cleared the temple. And people said, On what authority did you clear the temple? And he says, Well, what do you say about John's baptism? Is it of God or of the world? And the people think, and the, the Pharisees go, oh, he's trying to trick us so we won't say anything. So he says, I won't tell you whose authority I do it on. Because he knows they're trying to be duplicitous. And then there's Mark 12, which I'm going to be talking about tonight, funnily enough. Um, so it's fresh in my mind. He has all these things where people try and test him. And each time he shows a different way of thinking. And this is a classic. Right, so they go. Oh, who? they want to trap him because if he says, "Give the taxes to Caesar," then he's going. Caesar is greater than God, right? He's telling the Jewish people that Caesar is greater than God. And if he says, "Don't give your taxes to to Caesar," then the Romans are going to go. He's a rebel, and we need to kill him. So what does he do? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give unto God what is God's. It's just, it's brilliant. And I love the bit where he gets the coin, right? And he says. Whose image is on this? Caesar's. So give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. If you think about that then, whose image is on you? God's image. So if you're going to use Caesar's money to buy things, well, give him his taxes. If you're going to use God's body, then you might want to give him your allegiance, right? So, what does all this mean? I've talked about, you know, we can't go that path and we can't go that path and all that. Can we have the next slide, please? In in, uh, Spiritual and Religious, Tom Wright talks about recovering Trinitarian theology, recovering the Trinity, and actually understanding the Trinity. And I love this quote. This is quite late in the book. The true God has, in Jesus, dethroned the false gods. And that by his Holy Spirit at work in and through his people, he's implementing that victory in the world today. But worshipping this, sorry not thus, this true God and indeed believing in him is not easy. It's like keeping course on a mountain walk through thick mist and swirling wind. We need to check the compass continually if we are to, my printer was running out of ink, uh, keep our bearings, there we go. So... The compass is Jesus. It's both that simple and that hard, because it's easy to say, but hard to do. We cannot know the Gospels well enough. It was that comment that he makes, because that's taken from that's part of the, the, the wider quote that made me go at sanctuary, let's focus on a gospel. We are always liable to be blown off course but close and continuous study of and meditation upon Jesus will provide the stabling factor that we need. It is in light of him that we go about rediscovering who the creator of the universe is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the perfect representation of his being. It is in light of him, Jesus, that we will go on rediscovering who the Holy Spirit is, really is, and learning to distinguish his spirit, the Holy Spirit, from the other spirits that present themselves to us from time to time and it 's really important you know when I was going to talk about spirit versus legalism, one of the things that you see sometimes when people are going, "Ah, oh, the Holy Spirit told me to do insert x thing here, which is just absolutely the opposite of what 's said in the Bible so I'm going to place, and it's like, well, I'm not sure that you're listening to the Holy Spirit there. What is Jesus? What would his view, how does he present it? Radical Trinitarianism is what we need. I've seen seen theologies that exalt spirit over Christ. And I've seen theologies that exalt the word over Christ, even though Christ is the word. (laughs) And I've seen theologies that exalt the creator over Christ. Our entry into the Trinity is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The carpenter from Nazareth, the incarnate God, the giver of the Holy Spirit, the very image of the invisible God, our Savior and our Redeemer, our rock and our salvation, it is upon him that we stand in the thick mist and swirling wind of our times. He is the only path. He is the third way. So I'm going to wrap up. Uh, I'm also, if we can have the next slide please. There's a, in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy uh, and in, in Catholicism, there are often, there's these traditions around prayers that you can say over Again, as a way of kind of just focusing and uh, um, focusing your mind and your heart on the Lord, and in particular, there's one in Eastern Orthodoxy that you know that's basically the prayer that we see: uh, "Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner." And that's good. Right? That's a good thing for us to remember, because we are not perfect. We are made, we are perfect. We're made perfect in Him, but at the same time, we're walking out. our our imperfect perfection in this world Um, and what this is from spiritual and religious what Tom Wright is saying is maybe we need to create a Trinitarian view of that and that's what this is this is a prayer that you, it's simple enough that you can memorise it and you can just repeat